Love Talk Radio. Another team to let your team person go forward. 
And so I know they also time the teams, too. But actually how it's done, I'm really not sure. It must be a lot of people with stopwatches. Right, right. I just have no idea. I have no experience in it. Uh, the only thing I've done that's even remotely like that is I did some sailing racing uh, back when I was a teenager in Quincy. We had the Quincy Bay Race Week. And wow. I remember it was a team, and we did some of these same things. You'd, you'd try to um, help your teammates and steal the wind of your opponents and that sort of thing. I didn't know you were a sailor in your, oh, your yeah. youth. Yep, I wow. like sailing. Too. I'm sure. impressed. Sailing always um, struck me, and you know this is coming from a surfer, as a cold, wet sport, and I wanted nothing to do with it. <laughs> well, that depends on the size of the boat, of course, Patrick. Were you sailing big boats or little boats? Well, both. I mean, uh, in Quincy Bay, there were smaller boats. Uh, my father was a sailor. He had a bigger boat. Aha. So well, I have some background in that. So you actually grew up being out on boats. Right. Did, definitely. Oh, okay. See, I, mm-hmm. I, I didn't. The only boats I've been on are like 100-footers you know, or you know, the, the, the day fishing boat, which is maybe a 40-footer. But, uh, right. Wow. Because I, whenever I, I have been out on sailboats a couple of times, and, and we always got really, really wet. Right. Well, that's part of it. Sure. Okay. Well, <laughs> uh, what made you decide to stop sailing? Well, I mean, I still do occasionally. I don't. It's just I'm not that active in it anymore. There's still here in Boston. We still have the community boating club in um, on the Charles River, which I, I occasionally do in the summer, but. It's, it's it's sailing the Charles River is very difficult because of, it's so urban that you can get a great wind and then all of a sudden you lose it because of the way the buildings uh, line up in the skyline on the shore. Interesting. Tell you what, why don't we take a quick break and we can bring in our um, affiliates and we'll be right back. Blog talk listeners, our radio affiliates are moving their satellite dishes around so they can pick us up, and we're going to be right back. <laughs> and we are back, and I've, I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm welcoming everybody on our all our radio listeners uh, to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Our listeners are on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay, Bradenton, Florida. And, of course, Tampa Bay is the scene today of what is promising to be a very noisy shareholders meeting of uh, J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. Uh, I would love to be in, in on that. And also our listeners on KSKQ-FM in Ashland, Oregon. And I'm hosting today's edition of the Fairness Radio, Fairness Radio from Los Angeles. Chuck Morse is in Boston. We are joined, as we usually are on Tuesday, by Deacon Michael Wanowitz. We'd love to be joined by you. Email us, fairnessradio at gmail.com, or call us, 424-675-6806. 424-675-6806. So, uh, you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and you can find us um, on the Internet at fairnessradio.com. And we were just talking about your sailing past, uh, Chuck, and I have to say I, I am impressed. I've always admired people who, who sailed, because I can't. 
Patrick, I want to bring up a topic that's a little more serious, not that sailing and bicycling aren't serious. They certainly are, especially in the summer. Go for it. And that is that according to Dick Morris in his new book Dick Mar- by Dick Morris and Eileen McGann called Screwed, he says that uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is negotiating the rights of the child treaty and that, in fact, uh, it's being presented by your <laughs> senator, Barbara Boxer, um, with the concern that Dick Morris expresses that this could be shoved through during the Senate lame duck, which is always a very dangerous time. And uh, I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts on the rights of the child treaty, Patrick? Do you think this is a good idea for the United States? Actually, to, to I, I haven't it? really read it, so I haven't paid any attention to it. And I guess um, you, since you brought it up, I should. But uh, my apologies, it just not, has not been on my radar in general, um, the United Nations um, and, and the global treaties on human rights are, in my experience, uh, wonderful expressions of um, uh, aspirational uh, rights and um, are generally ignored by all concerned. But I don't know what the story is on this one, so I'm going to have to just plead ignorance. I'm sorry about that. No, not at all. Let me give you a few highlights. And first of all, by signing a treaty like this, it becomes binding. In fact, the Constitution has a clause, a supremacy clause, which does recognize foreign treaties as binding, even if they contradict the Constitution. In the 1950s, there was an attempt to change that with an amendment called the Bricker Amendment that failed, mainly because of Dwight Eisenhower's opposition to it. But the problem is that before World War II, there was never an issue because no one of either party would ever think of signing a foreign treaty that would contradict the Constitution. But since 1945 and the United Nations, it has become an issue. And the issue of the, the rights of the child treaty, I'll give you a few, a, few, a few samples of it. Article 12, quote, when adults are making decisions which affect children, children have the right to say what they think should happen and have their opinion taken into account. Now, mind you, this is an international treaty in which people, parents could literally be taken to court. Article 15 guarantees children, quote, freedom of association, unquote. Now, I don't know about you, Patrick, but I like to have some say over who my daughter associates with. Um, article, let's see, the treaty, Article 37, quote, children should not be, well, I agree with this, children should not be put in prison with adults. I don't think they should either, and I don't think they are in this country. Yeah, and, but if, they are. Well, if they are, that's a state issue, that's a federal issue, but do we want to have an international body? It says that, um, let's see, the treaty requires all signatory nations to provide children with adequate levels of food, clothing, housing, education, and medical care. Well, right now, Great Britain has signed the treaty, and British Prime Minister Cameron is facing a lawsuit for violating the treaty because he's claiming he's he might cut welfare benefits. What that means is that welfare is a guarantee on an international level. And, and there are some other things about it. Now, look, the things that are in it may be things that people don't necessarily object to. The problem with this is do we want to hand over to an international party such matters as family planning and family law. Um, I say it is a very, very bad and very dangerous idea. And, Patrick, since you know Barbara Boxer, I mean, you might look into this and contact her office and ask them about this. Yeah, uh, I will, because, and uh, also just inform myself about the treaty. This is the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which uh, yes. 
Well, I recall we signed. Um, in, no. In, no, no, it's not been it? signed. No, never. Huh, okay. I thought it was signed but not ratified. All right, well, no. I'll take your word for it on that because I, I don't know. To, there was an attempt to put it through during the lame duck Clinton months. Uh-huh. And and I think the same thing is going to happen if Obama loses in his lame duck. Well, it very, very too. Maybe. Well, it probably won't if it wins because there'll be, you know, Republican opposition. But these things, even well, I suppose even if he does win, you still have a lame duck Congress, and you exactly. still, it's a time of mischief, and it's a time when things like this. You might recall Bill Clinton also tried to sign the um, International Criminal Court, which which he didn't do. He didn't get away with it. But I it would have. Well, maybe you do, but the point is it would have resulted in a radical way, a change in the way we, we uh, have jurisprudence in this country, and it should be uh, something that's debated out in the open rather than shoved through. And I think this is, this is even worse than that, in my opinion. Well, I will look into it. I don't know. Mike, do you have any, uh, any thoughts on it? Well, I think uh, the question that's come up before, I think in some discussions maybe a few years ago, this idea of providing situations where the use of the word child or children, and I don't know if there's any specific age, and maybe, Chuck, you've seen something about how old a child must be to be within the confines of what they're talking about. And as you say, you know, uh, for a parent to say that whom should my children be associating with, you know, that kind of thing. So it does seem to really raise an interesting Ideas, I think, in the West or in the United States, I think our family ideas about parental relationships are probably very different than in other parts of the world. They are, yeah. Right. Oh, absolutely. And my my issue is that we need to maintain, as sovereign people, the right to to craft laws, family law, on a local and state level. We don't need to have an unelected unaccountable international bureau deciding such matters and and then making that legal. Well, right now we need to take a break and uh, bring our guest on. So uh, we'll be back uh, very soon. You listen to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and because it's Tuesday, Dean Michael Lewanowitz. When we come back, Lynn Winstead, Liz Winstead will be with us, the co-founder of The Daily Show, the head writer of The Daily Show, and co-founder of um, Air America. Be right back. back. 
You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Block Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio stations <coughs> around the country. We want you to be part of the program. You can call us, 424-675-6806. You can also email us, fairnessradio at gmail.com. And this segment is brought to you by Barton Publishing, bartonpublishing.com, your source of information on managing your health and your body without toxic or expensive drugs. Well, the first time I encountered our next guest, I was rushing through the lower floors of a hotel convention center trying to find coffee before my meeting of the board of directors of Netroots Nation. At the end of a large hall bisected by an escalator, she was sitting at a raised table with three other people holding forth on microphones and surrounded by a couple of hundred people sitting on the floor drinking the coffee that I wanted. I didn't know who she was, but I was glad she was not in the line in front of me. Fortunately, I had nothing else to do while waiting for my turn at the urn, but listen, she and her compatriots were so funny that I actually did not notice that the only bagels left were salt, and they went really badly with the great jam I was squeezing out of a little plastic envelope onto them. In fact, I was laughing so hard, I missed half my meeting, and I've been a fan ever since. Liz Winstead is co-creator and former head writer of The Daily Show and one of the founders of Air America and a nationally known stand-up comedian and performer. She has a new book out, Liz Free or Die from Riverhead Books, and she's on tour. Liz, welcome to Fairness Radio. Thank you so much, and I think the saddest part of that story, and I've been there, is putting something sweet on a salty bagel. (laughs) I have had the onion bagel jelly debacle myself, so I understand completely. Uh, Onion works a little better with grape jam than salt, let me tell you. (laughs) Well, Liz, this book is even funnier than the breakfast conversation at Netroots. Uh, well, you're Danny, so sweet to say. Thank you. Well, as Henry Kissinger used to say, it has the added advantage of being true. <laughs> and he it really does. Say that. Oh, well, you know, sometimes Kissinger will uh, surprise us all with one or two uh, things that actually make sense. Well, you make a lot of sense, and you manage to make me laugh and also to make yourself wonderfully human and vulnerable. I think messy is what you called it in the forward. So in that spirit, I'm going to ask you, why did an accomplished TV and radio producer and talent and stand-up comedian decide to write something as old-fashioned as a book? Well, I think for me it was – I turned 50 this year, and I had through the course of my life – um, done some things that I was pretty proud of, and I had accomplished quite a bit with with a lot of people constantly throwing up roadblocks in front of me. And too many people that I have met in my in my years on this earth who have been really talented, creative thinkers have just gotten beaten down by the process because they didn't have anybody encouraging them or putting down any kind of words that said, "You want to know what." There's always going to be bumps in the road and things that seem insurmountably awful. But if you can somehow push your way through them, you can remain on the creative path. Because every time you leap over one of those hurdles, you're still in the game and you've gained something, some strength from it. And so part of it was just to say, hey, don't quit as soon as you think you might, you might have to. Um, here's some stories about my life that propelled me to find my voice and how that voice became comedy and then how that voice became a comedic voice that um, hopefully started uh, getting people to think and react in a whole new way. Well, 
you've done that with a lot of personal stories, and I think you've you've accomplished that goal. Uh, you talk about your abortion as a teenager, your father's death, and others. But um, uh, there's one hurdle that you left over, so to speak, that I would love to have you tell our audience about, and this is about the hurdle of your first paid comedy gig when you were on stage in a wedding gown and a movie screen rolled up behind you. Well, let me tell you, it was, and I have a little bit of a um, hoarse voice, so excuse me if I clear my throat a little bit. <clears throat> it was in the 1980s, and back in the 80s, there was something going on in all the nightclubs around, around the country called, it was called Air Guitar, and people would go to great lengths to reenact and then lip sync to either famous videos or famous songs. And it became, at the club that I was frequenting in Minneapolis called First Avenue, which your listeners may know is the club that Purple Rain shot, or Prince shot Purple Rain in. And so it was the 80s, so I was dressed in one of those, like, vintage Madonna wedding dresses that was a full skirt, full and full of fabric. And it was, it was like the dog days of August, 95 degrees, a packed club full of 1,500 people, and I was the MC, and I was so nervous, and I was so excited, and I just wanted to desperately be hip and, 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 and be able to pull this off. And I walked into the club in this massive wedding dress, and I couldn't barely breathe. And I thought, how am I going to be able to get through an entire night with this dress? Who would know if I just decided not to wear tights or anything underneath it what could possibly go wrong? So I'm standing on stage, and things are going well, and I'm introducing the first act, and the audience is with me, and the screen rolls up as I'm introducing the first act, and my dress starts rolling up in the screen behind me, and the dress starts ripping from the middle back, and I am lifted off the stage about three inches, and the mechanism in the screen breaks, and I am basically now hanging before 1,500 club rats, totally exposed, naked from the waist down, wondering what the hell is going to happen to me. And at that moment, the audience is laughing. It was like that scene in the movie Carrie, when Carrie is standing there, and everybody is pointing and laughing at her, and she's on stage. And I was like, oh, my God, they're all laughing at me. What am I going to do? I can't run off. I'm trapped and hanging. So I've got to turn this negative somehow into a positive. So I just kept talking. And I thought, well, if I can tell some jokes, maybe they'll go with me a little bit, and they won't notice that I'm standing there bare in front of them with my big 1980s lady parts basically front and center. So I go with the carry metaphor. And I'm like, well, at least a bucket of pig blood didn't jump on my head. And the audience laughed. And then I thought, okay, I'll keep going with this. And then I said, well, maybe you can see my girl garden, but you're not seeing my dirty pillows. And then they burst out laughing. And then the dynamic changed from them laughing at me to laughing with me. And in what seemed to be an hour was really only about three minutes. But at that point, I heard a guy in the audience say, I bet she planned this. And I was like, yes, yes, please believe that. Please tell your friends. Let's make it that Liz Winstead is so funny and so talented. She will do anything for her audience to make sure they're having a good time. And and I, I realized at that moment, no matter what happens to you, if you can change the conversation. I knew that everybody was always going to remember that my, I was naked before them, but if they could remember something else and that something else would 
to me was that she's also really funny. Maybe that will just reshift and, and kind of reset the dynamic. And sure enough, it did. And right as I was panicked because I was running out of material, this boy I had a crush on forever who was also the stage manager at the club comes up, has to cut me out of the dress completely because it's the only way to get me out, and takes off this cowboy shirt he has on and says, I'm going to cut you out of the dress. You're going to slip into this shirt, and do you want to have dinner with me next week? And I was like, oh, my God, I win on every level. Date with a cute boy, made the audience laugh, didn't, wasn't left in, in a pure mortified state of nakedness. And the audience from that point forward, I put the cowboy shirt on, I continued hosting the rest of the night, and afterwards there was high fives and people loved it. And they talked about my recovery from that horrible event as much as they talked about the horrible event. And so it was a great lesson knowing that no matter what happened to me on stage from that point forward, nothing could be as bad as that particular moment. It was really kind of life-changing. And it was, of course, your first paid gig, too. So My first pay, all of $50. Right. Strippers get paid more at crappy places. <laughs> well, the book is filled with similar stories, uh, Liz, <clears throat> but this is a political talk show, and you're a political person, so I'd, I'd like to turn to politics if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, you were raised in a very large Catholic family in a conservative uh, Lutheran Minnesota. So what yeah. sent you to the left instead of to the right where your parents were? Well, I think the good news is Minnesota is a very progressive community to be in. And so I think that, and I also was the youngest of five kids, uh, many of which whom were Vietnam-era teens and in their 20s. And so their opinions were wildly different than my parents. Most of the other people I encountered in my life had opinions wildly different than my parents. And so I think that, my politics didn't come so much from rebelling against, let's say, their politics as much as it came from rebelling against watching how society said no to me and then also to people that I had come in con- contact with, friends of mine, whether they were gay or people of color. They were they were prevented from sort of exploring their best selves simply because of that, but like, when they were told no because they choose to love somebody different than society, deemed okay. When they were when they were told no simply because their color was a different, their skin was a different color than you know the people in power. I was told no simply because I was born you know a young girl rather than a, a boy. And so when I watched the injustices, I I chose to you know bond with them and, and fight with the solidarity for us all. And then as I got older and my politics actually developed and I took things that interested me like women's studies classes in school and things like that and I learned that my parents I disagreed fundamentally with the way that they came to the conclusion of of solving a problem whether it was you know my dad was like loved Reagan and was a Goldwater Republican and a Reagan Republican and and I could actually fight with him without him saying to me at the end of the day you're stupid or there is no science or there was a practicality about his politics that even though I disagreed with maybe who you would displace in order to get to a certain point, it was at least something that was rooted in reality. And that has changed so much the politics we are today, where people are set in this moralistic set of values that has nothing to do with the real world we live in and or helping other people. You know, when people deny science, I just don't even know why you get a, a seat at the table. 
you know, when people say things like the way we want to reduce abortion is to remove all access to birth control, we're living in crazy town. I happen to agree with you. I'm sure we have many <laughs> listeners and uh, some other people who might not. But uh, uh, we also have on the air with us, as we do every Tuesday, Deacon Michael Wanowitz, a Catholic theologian. And I, I wanted uh, to, to ask, I wanted to tell a quick story from your book and then ask him if things have changed. And that quick story is that uh, at one point you wanted to be an altar girl. And when you asked the bishop <laughs> if you could be an altar girl, what was the bishop's comment? <laughs> Well, I never heard back from the bishop. The problem was I went to, it was so funny because as a little kid, I, had, I, I created a thing into my head, which was, I call it the anvil rule. If I was asking permission to do something, um, I, I couldn't lift an anvil. It was too heavy. It would be silly for me to ask, and I couldn't accomplish the task at hand if it was if it was something like that. So if it, if, if I was asking permission to do something that, didn't seem to um, harm anyone and could help me maybe discover something about myself or something I enjoyed. <laughs> if I if I heard no, I needed somebody to, to give me something more than just no. And so growing up as a, as a young Catholic girl, five kids in my family and the youngest, you can only imagine that I couldn't get a word in edgewise. And so when I would go to church every Sunday, the priest was the one person in my life who every Sunday got on stage, held an audience captive with his message, and then afterwards everybody talked to him about what he said. And I was like, I want to be a priest. That seems awesome. And so I foolishly thought that the way that you get to be a priest was to become an altar boy first. Like that was somehow the training program. I wasn't quite with the program. So when I sat down with the priest and I said, you know what? I can't believe that I never thought of this and that no one ever asked to do this, Father, when can I start? And he, and I saw the look in his face, and, and it was a look in the face that all adults get when they desperately need to pull something out of their you-know-where you know to, to make the situation go away. And he said, well, Liz, you can't be an altar girl uh, because it's called altar boy. And I stared at him, and I was like, you can't be serious that, that we're just going to leave it at that. And so I wasn't necessarily trying to be provocative. I was trying to help him along. So I said, well, Bobby, it seems simple. If I do it, we can call me Alter Girl. Problem solved. And then, of course, he was like, well, um, it's not that simple, and I'm not the person that can make these decisions. We have to go to a higher person, like every adult did, you know, look, pass this off to another adult. So he said, you write Bishop Roach. You write Bishop Roach, and he will help you through this. And then, and when you get a letter back from him, you bring that letter back to me, and we'll see what we can do. Well, I never got the letter back. But to this day, somehow, some other little girls in other communities must have had the same same idea in my head because now they have uh, young girls that serve, and they're called servers. So somebody found a way. Uh, Mike, do you have uh, servers, uh, female servers, in your altar? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, I think one of the things that when I'm listening to um, our, our guest today is that things do sometimes in the Catholic Church come from the bottom up, not always. Yeah. And this is a perfectly good example. Uh, certainly over the years, people were referred to as also boys because they were all boys and it was kind of a male situation. Today they are called also servants uh, in our particular local parish 
we have probably more girls and boys, as it turns out, who are volunteering. Uh, when I have and I serve at the church, uh, maybe uh, 10, 11, 12-year-old kids, first of all, uh, the girls seem to have a much more a, a careful sense of what they're doing, whether it be decorum or focused. Uh, boys that age tend to be uh, dreaming and so forth and so on. So I'm always very happy to find that um, we have altered girls at a particular mass. Well, well, let me tell you, Deacon, it was so funny because after I was told no, I would watch intently and I would I would watch as as all of you everything that you just said would play out. You know, I would watch one of the boys maybe nod off or he wouldn't get to the chalice in time and I was like, yeah, I would have right. hit that perfectly. I would have made sure that when I was walking up carrying one of the sacraments, I would have been amazing at it. This <laughs> is so frustrating. Well of course you're a performer. Uh, let uh on a program note, uh, because I want to introduce you to my my uh, my co-host, but d- would you have a little time this morning to go a little bit beyond our scheduled 23 minutes? And that's because we have a lot of emails here for for you. For me? Yeah, well, yes, but I just wondered, do you have a little extra time this morning? I actually have an interview at two. Okay, so you do have some a little extra time. All right. Well, I'm going to read one email and then introduce you to uh, my co-host. Um, and the email is for somebody I think we both know, Michael Spacco. Michael who? Michael Spacco. Well, I'm not sure. Do I know, I know Michael? I know who he is. Actually, he's been on the show. And he wants to hear your stories from plant, from your Planned Parenthood tour. And he wants to know about when you went to towns in conservative states, what did you learn, and is it true that you got death threats? Yes. Um, it is. All of those things are true. I mean... For me, I was. It's been. It was an amazing journey because part of what I desperately wanted on this tour was for people to understand that the very thing that we I said earlier, which is one of the ways to stop and reduce the number of abortions, is to make sure that there is access to birth control. And we don't live. We live in a world, unfortunately where you can have the greatest parents in the world, but our sexual our sexuality is developed often long before our sense of, our common sense and reason are. We don't live in a world where there's abstinence and unicorns. We just don't. And so when there are clinics around the country that are providing all kinds of health care for women who especially can't afford to go to a doctor, um, when people come out and protest them and um, almost every clinic and show that I did, the physicians that attended my show were wearing bulletproof vests. Um, it was always, there was protesters in many of the of the uh, shows. But what happened was there was a solidarity where it was, is my goal was to have an affordable ticket price so that people could come out and see shows and understand that their neighbors and their friends, men and women, all supported this clinic. Uh, because it was part of their community for a very long time, and that these people were trying to provide health care services for women who wouldn't otherwise get them. And it was a really um, incredibly emotional experience. People themselves would gather and say, oh, that's Nancy, my neighbor, she lives across the street, or, oh, I work with that woman over there. And they would get together and talk, and, and they themselves carried the dialogue on long after I left, and I found that really encouraging. And, and Michael wanted to know if you got death threats. 
I I got threats from people comparing me to Michael Vick. I got threats from people saying um, you you yourself are supporting murder. You yourself are a murderer. You should be stopped. I have gotten all kinds of varying emails threatening me um, on a level that was like, you need to be stopped. Those kind of threats, not overtly, we'd like to kill you. Yeah. But um, overtly, you need to be stopped. You are a horrible person. You will go to hell. Uh, you are doing a disservice to your family and your parents and the name of God. And I just, I have a big problem when people tell me what my relationship with God is because I feel like my God put me on the earth to learn how to be my best self to serve others and that I wouldn't be defined by my mistakes, but I should learn from them, no matter what those mistakes are. Well, we have so many things to talk about, but I, I want to introduce you to my, my co-host, uh, Chuck Morris. Chuck? Thank you, Patrick, and thanks for joining us, Liz. Uh, sure, um, thank you. You know, I mean, I'd really like to talk about your your, your process as a comedian and how you develop um, what I've heard described as sort of lateral thinking. You know, in a sense, I mean, a good comedian is somebody who um, can can come up very quickly and sharply with various metaphors for for situations. And and in a sense, I mean, in the broad sense, you described a good situation where you actually were able to change a subject. And uh, I mean, as a talk show host, I've always found people trying to change the subject sometimes, and you know, you try to bring them back, and and it's not so easy. So. You know, that whole process is very interesting to me, how that happens, how somebody actually can uh, can do that. I mean, it seems to be almost a way of thinking that comedians have and that uh, I, I'd like to, I've always wanted to develop um, myself. Can you describe um, the, the comedic way of thinking? I mean, that's a pretty broad, that's a pretty broad question because so many comics have a different process and a different uh, tone and how they... Uh, perform and, and what they do on stage. Uh, for my process, I talk a lot about political and social issues. And so what I like to do is hone in on the hypocrisy of of a person or an issue and try to ask questions through my humor and then try to always stick to the issue, not the person. Stay away from sexism. Stay away from, you know, it was interesting to me when, when Barack Obama was elected and I, the question I got a lot from journalists was, oh, how are you going to make jokes about Barack Obama? And the message I got was, oh, he's black. Are you going to make jokes about him being black? Which I found offensive in nature. When I was like, he's a politician who has come up to the ranks like every other politician. And right. when he makes mistakes and uses his power inappropriately or if I think he's not doing what he needs to do or, or if he becomes corrupt in some way, um, there's very many ways to point out when a politician is being um, a hypocrite, and so, you know, I was I was I was a little bit stunned by that. And when people go to the cheap well of talking about a Sarah Palin or a Michelle Bachman about what they look like or or some kind of calling them names that are derogatory towards females, I just think that's so lazy. When people lay out a philosophy that is incorrect or you know, they prove themselves to be dishonorable. A, that's that has nothing to do with their gender. So point those things out and 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 bring your bring your theory to that. So whenever I am crafting or thinking of a joke, I always try to think on my subject. 
if I if I make a joke or when I make a joke, can I can the person who is hearing it laugh and then when they go to dinner after the show say, I really liked how she said that. That's a really interesting take and carrying on the conversation rather than shutting the conversation down. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because first of all, Patrick and I, you know, we do left right radio here, and I think that sort of the stock and trade not just of our show, but of most talk shows, is calling out hypocrisy, whether it be left or right, and um, and kind of comparing actions to um, to what people claim they believe in. But uh, I'm involved right now in somewhat, I suppose, uh, of a political experiment uh, as the author of a new book called A Whig Manifesto, which I wrote for this new political party called a Mo- the Modern Whig Party. They, they, their raise on debt is that... Um, Conservatives and liberals, Democrats and Republicans, are no longer speaking to each other. They no longer—it's almost like they exist on a parallel universe. And as a result, the uh, the country has become not just polarized, but it but stratified. There's no there's nothing that gets there's nothing that happens. And uh, and they try to um, to transcend that. And mm-hmm. as the author, of course, I've had to write several articles and and things that have been put up there to promote the book. And what I find is that people on the left, they just, it's like they didn't read what I said. They, they respond to something that's been pre-wired into them to, as a sort of a knee-jerk response. And the same thing with people on the right. And, and I'm wondering if you encounter that. It's, it's almost as if people have become wired into certain preconceived reactions without necessarily taking a look at the complexity of an issue or looking at something in a broader sense. Well, I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that we've evolved into that place, and I've experienced it from the right as well. You know, I write in my book about the fact that I was not born with the DNA to become a mom. I just wasn't. It was just not in the cards for me. I didn't choose um, to be a mother because it it just wasn't part of my destiny. I don't have the, I don't have the patience, the dedication. I wanted to do other things with my life. I've been criticized by people on the right saying that, I hate I hate motherhood. That's what it became. That I, I, I hate I hate motherhood and that I'm destroying motherhood and because I didn't find the right man I've got a demonized motherhood which has nothing to do with anything that I'm talking about at all. I think motherhood's fantastic, but I also think it's a choice just like being a brain surgeon or anything else. And if you do not have the skills to be really good at that, then why would you do that? You know, I think it takes right. it's it's actually it's the opposite of selfish. I think it's pretty selfless. And so well, when we talk about motherhood... Yeah, I mean, it's an individual choice. I mean, right now we've seen, like, for example, Anne Romney is being attacked as, like, compared to Hitler because she has stood for motherhood. So you have this really polarized reaction, I suppose, on on both sides, where people really aren't thinking about what they're saying. They're not taking well, a look I mean, at... Well, I mean, yeah, but I, would, but I would also take issue with you on the Anne Romney thing because I don't think that Anne Romney was attacked because she defended motherhood. I think that... Um, it was that Ann Romney is a wonderful mother. That doesn't mean she's a wonderful economist. And if Mitt Romney is constantly, as he is, talking about when Ann goes out and talks to women, women say they're talking about these issues. That's a giant disconnect that is worth a conversation having. Why isn't Mitt Romney talking to women? Why is his, you know, he never said, the women in my life that I talk to, maybe that's because there were no women on the, on the board of being capital, I don't know. Well, his lieutenant governor was a woman in Massachusetts, and I think what people found offensive was 
that it was the the reference to her having never worked a day in her life, which is also not true. I mean, putting that aside, but uh, but but everybody knows that what she meant was outside the home. So if if you want to go down that rabbit hole, I'm glad to go there with you. No, no, she's worked a lot outside the home. I'm a resident of Massachusetts, and as governor, I can Romney, his wife was always out working. You know, that's just not true. What were her jobs? Her job was. Her job was First Lady of Massachusetts, and she worked very hard. She traveled crisscross the state constantly, addressing audiences, filling in for him. Uh, I mean, she was a very active but that is not figure. working out. So that, that is not balancing. Okay. Well, um, you and I have to content. disagree. Fine. I mean, you and like I will a, disagree on that. Yeah, I, I would, I would totally contend disagree that, on that. Exactly. I would contend, and having observed her as a resident of the state, that she worked very hard, uh, but but the the issue we have, we have I'm trying minute, to get uh, at here. Yep. Uh, Chuck. Sure, Patrick. Why don't we go to some emails? Uh, well, well, actually, uh, uh, the, the, a lot of the emails all uh, ask about uh, where where she's going to be. So why don't okay. I very quickly say Liz is on tour and uh, she's going to be in uh, Minneapolis May 21st. That's next Monday. You know, what, send it to my website. I've got a whole list on my website where my whole schedule is posted. And that website is www.lliswinstead.com. That's L-I-Z-C-W-I-N-S-T-A-D.com. W-I-N-S-T-E-A-D.com, yeah. Right. And unfortunately, we're out of time, Liz, and I know you have another uh, another interview to go to. I want to thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Liz. Very interesting. Hey, you guys, thank you so much. It was great having me on, and thank you so much. The book is Liz Free or Die, and again, as I said, she's on tour, and go to her website, www.lizzwinstad.com. Uh, you, you know you're spelling my website wrong. Okay, say it again. It's Liz Win- Winstead is spelled like instead with a W in front of it. So it's W-I-M-S-T-E-A-D.com. W, it's L-I-Z-Z-W-N-I-S-T-A-D dot com. E-A-D, Patrick. Please. Thank you. <laughs> okay. I got too many right. windows open on my computer screen here. We, we got we got to go. We got a station break coming right. up with our radio affiliate. Thanks, guys. All right, Thank Liz. Liz. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick <laughs> on the Block Talk Radio Network, Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. And uh, I just wanted to repeat that website again. That's www. 
L I Z Z W I N S T E A D. And you can go there. You can get information on uh, Liz Winstead's tour. You can also order the book there. And the book is Liz for Your Die. It's also available in bookstores both online and around the country. My apologies to all of you whose emails we didn't get to. But uh, you can uh, check if you can also follow Liz on Twitter. And Liz's Twitter handle is at Liz Winstead. Well, that was fun. I, I enjoyed her very much. I'm looking forward to, to seeing her in person in Hollywood and also at Netroots Nation. And um, who knows, maybe we can have her back on the air after Netroots Nation. What do you think, Chuck? Maybe, Patrick. I mean, I'm going to be at Netroots Nation, I think, Yay. although you seem reluctant to have me there, but I, I was thinking of going. No, that that would be fun. That would be fun. It's going to be in Providence this year. Yeah, which is not far away. That's right. Patrick, I mean, I don't know. I should ask Mike this question as well, but um, – I I got the impression, and you can correct me, you can certainly disagree, but one of the main themes that she seemed to talk about, at least on our show, was her abortion and abortion in general. And I got the sense that she has extreme regret and pathos over that. (laughs) Well, that's not an impression that I got. (laughs) Right. I mean, I'm listening to a person's emotion. I mean, she didn't say that, but when she talked about it, it had a quality of like, you know, I really made a big mistake and I regret it. And it seems to be something that almost has um, has defined her. And, uh, you know, I, I just felt that. I mean, maybe I'm just, uh, you know, maybe I, I have it all wrong there, I'll admit. But that's that's how I, I that's how I seem to me. That's that's what I felt from that. It was almost a very sad, sad comment. Mike, did you pick up on that? <clears throat> Well, she also mentioned that, you know, motherhood, being a parent and so forth, was something that she felt she didn't have the ability to do. or Well, she didn't want that. to do it, and I respect yeah. that. But even then, it seemed like it wasn't quite so simple. I mean, it seems like something she's she's had a lot of angst over and thought right. about. And um, and I think that she seemed to keep coming back to the abortion. Well, I, I just uh, I found that it, it, it made me feel very sad. Mm. Well, it, it, it doesn't come through in the book at all. I've never uh, heard that in any of the conversations I've had with her. Uh, I didn't hear right. that. I'm not saying she said this, Patrick. I think, I think I'm saying the feeling in there. it was a feeling that I got question. from her. It was a feeling that I got from her tone when she talked about it. It sounded like almost somebody who had a serious problem in the past, like a drug addiction or an alcoholism, who who had no longer had that problem and was looking back and saying, you know. I really have made mistakes, and I've learned from my mistakes in my life. And it had like a tone of of profound regret. I mean, that's just what I heard there. Well, I'm and again, it's not anything she said. It was more of a feeling. I'm glad you heard that because I didn't. Uh, Mike, uh, you never had a chance to answer Chuck's question. He interrupted you there. So, what do you think? Well, I I think too. What caught me was her very uh, didactic way of putting it that a person should be able to make a choice as to whether or not to be a parent, to be a mother or a father or whatever. And, you know, there's been such a thing over societal decades that, you know, raising a family is maybe the most important thing that one can do. And I think that's an issue that she was saying is that people should be able to be respected for not wanting to be a, a family maker, if you will. I thought that was a very 
you know, strong statement she was making for individual decision-making. Well, I agree with her there. If she felt that uh, she just didn't have the, the DNA to be a mother, if, um, and, and I know other women like that uh, who would never think of being a mother, they'd be terrible at it, and they knew they'd be terrible at it. Uh, they should have that choice, and fortunately they do have that choice. Uh, and Obviously. We have many examples of women who didn't have that choice who were terrible at being mothers and were sorry about it, and, and frankly so were their children and their husbands too. Well, I think every woman has that choice, Patrick, in this country. I mean, I don't think anybody, this is not, we don't have this since at least slavery times. Uh, well, I, mean, I agree. Uh, I mean, you know, and obviously country, that's not controversial. If someone well, doesn't choose to be married, then, then they don't get married. I mean, I don't think that that's controversial. To not get married? In our society who want to see to it, they don't have that choice. To not have a choice to get not get married? Yeah, to not have a choice to not have children. Yeah, who is and who would that be, Patrick? Uh, the entire anti-abortion and anti-contraception. Oh, I, I get what you mean. Country. In other words, yeah. they they would not have children because they're against abortion. I see. Well, look, I mean, the fact or is against, that, and some people against contraception too, which of course is the best way not to have unwanted children. No, they're they're in favor of the Vatican roulette. Anyway, Patrick, but the the main issue is that somebody nobody has any disrespect for people who choose not to be married and not to have a family. There are plenty I of people. I agree with you there. Well, can you give me an example of someone who is against someone not getting married? I mean, I think that generally in our society, liberal and conservative, we want to see our children get married. I mean, that's true. I don't think that's particularly a political thing. I think that's it's more of a societal thing. But people don't, and a lot of and they never and there are always examples where people haven't, and it's just not. I don't see it as a huge issue. I mean, I can't imagine anyone having a big you know, uh, movement against somebody who chooses not to get married. There have always been women who have chosen not to get married. Uh, well, there's a movement against women who who choose not to have children, whether they're married or not. And that's what I'm uh, re referring to. No, I don't I'm think sure so. that, uh, I, I mean, Michael, you, Mike, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They want to remove They want to remove the, uh, the tools by which women can uh, decide not to have children, birth control and, uh, and abortion. They want to see to it that that doesn't happen, that women don't have that access. And you can't deny that they're out there, Chuck. I'm sorry. No, I do. I, I deny that that means that people are against families or couples who decide not to have children. You know, I mean, and, and there are more women than men, as we know, uh, statistically, who generally are pro-life. There's nothing to do with not having children. It has to do with a moral position on the uh, treat treatment of the unborn child. Well, it's, it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's the way you're looking at child, it. Which, of course, many of us don't believe. I understand that, but many people do believe it. And it's not, the way you're looking at this is from a selective lens. I mean, it's well, not that they're saying, well, we, we're against someone who chooses not to have children. There are plenty of couples who choose not to have children. I mean, nobody's, I don't see anybody other than maybe someone's mother-in-law being upset about that. <laughs> I mean, that's just, we all want our children to, to be married and have children. That's not a political thing. Well, wait, 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 wait. I don't well, necessarily want do. my daughter to, to be married and have children. I want her to well, be able maybe to do what she Patrick. wants to do. Fine. Maybe you're different. But I think it's quite natural for most people, whether they'll, you know, regardless of their politics, to want to see their children be married mm -hmm. and have children. That's just natural. That's part of the human DNA, if you will. Well, now, that doesn't mean that. everyone... Okay, fine. Maybe you don't. Them, but they still you will agree with choice. me. Okay. And, and there are forces in our society who want to take away from them the tools for having that choice. And, and Vatican Roulette is called Roulette for a reason. And you Mike, know you what, Patrick, said a word on any of this. 
there's no I don't see any movement against couples who don't have children. You know, yeah, it's sort a of against the people view it. Abortions and yeah, but people don't view contraception. If 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 a couple doesn't have children, I think most people view that as something that is none of their business, and it's it's the kind of thing that uh, is maybe of concern to the immediate family. But beyond that, we I know people who don't have children. I don't view it as any of my business, and I don't think anyone really does. Uh, Mike, you, you haven't know? said anything. Well, I think the practical nature of life is that the changes that have gone on in the last, let's say, 50 years or so, what have you, uh, for a long time families had six, seven, eight, nine, ten children, what have you. Uh, these days we see a much smaller uh, family unit, if you will, and perhaps there are times when you have a couple who marry and, as Chuck says, do not have any children. And there are so many ways that people uh, can manage their family size and so forth and so on. Certainly the church has a particular perspective, but, you know, the reality is that people make their choices uh, right. and do it we quite well. A, we have an email here who says that uh, Chuck is reading between the lines based on Liz's tone of voice. That's very interesting. It is his perception. True. But you have the opportunity to ask Liz this question directly, and she can say no. Maybe she can answer it if she's on the show again. Well, I don't know if we'll have her on the show again, although I'll, I'll ask her. But uh, when I see her at Netroots, or Chuck, if you're at Netroots, you can you can ask her too. Sure. I mean, we just didn't that. have a, we didn't have a lot of time, Patrick. But yeah, that is my perception. I mean, that is what I felt. And I've been doing radio now for over ten years, and I do have a pretty good sense of where people are coming from by their voice. I mean, it's a, I'm not trying to brag here, but I do. I am able to pick up a lot from, from listening to someone, and that's what I heard. Well, we'll have to ask her. When we, because sure. That's not, I've never gatten that feeling from her well, at I'm all. Well, I'm sure and she's denied it, Patrick. We have, to, uh, we, have, we have to take a break because it's the end of the hour, and yep. uh, we'll be back next, uh, next hour with Sean Bilat, who is running for Congress in uh, Massachusetts. And you know Sean uh, Chuck, so I'm going to let you inter- introduce, her, d- introduce him. But right. that's, that's it for Hour One. Don't go away. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and we're going to be back after our, our affiliates uh, go to a news break, and we're going to talk a little bit about what happened in the nation and the world, and then we're going to talk to a congressional candidate from Massachusetts. Stay tuned. You listen to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick.
We are back with Hour 2 of Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm co-hosting with Chuck Morse. He's in Boston. We are joined today, as we always are on Tuesdays, by Deacon Michael Wadowitz. It's May 15, 2012, and we are the only radio program in America that routinely listens to voices from all sides. We are pushing the boundaries of radio. And then Hour 1, we have Liz Winstead, the, one of the nation's uh, top progressive comedians, co co co-founder and uh, head writer of The Daily Show, and in this hour we're going to talk with Sean Bilat, who's running for Congress as a conservative Republican in Massachusetts, so that's definitely both sides of the aisle. We are pushing the boundaries of radio. We broadcast Monday through Friday from 1 to 3 Eastern on CyberStationUSA.com, BlogTalkRadio.com, and our radio station affiliates. You can be part of it. You can call us, 424-675-6806. You can email us at fairnessradio at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook and our website at fairnessradio.com where you can sign petitions for causes that you support. Well, we're going to open up to our radio audience in a few minutes. They're in a news break, but let me introduce you to my friend and colleague, our co-host, Chuck Morris. Hi, Chuck. How are you, Patrick? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good that was a, a great first hour and i'm looking forward to the second hour um and i really love this format where it's not a format but just the way it worked out today where we had a progressive in hour one and we got a conservative in hour two that's what we do in this show right absolutely well um the other thing we do in this show is we um we talk a lot about uh news and of course there's a lot of news to talk about uh it uh, looks like the presidential campaign is in full swing. Sure. That, uh, and, and naturally it should be, of course. Uh, um, but there's a few other things going on, and one of those other things going on is the J.P. Morgan Chase shareholder meeting in Tampa. And, it, boy, the timing could not be worse for Jamie Dimon. I don't know if you've been following the, the, uh, the, the Chase Bank uh, debacle. I saw a little bit about it today in the New York Times. By the way, Patrick, speaking yeah. of the campaign, the CBS New York Times poll has has uh, Romney ahead. I'm I sure saw you that. Saw that. Yeah. Uh, and, and the Rom and the the the, the, um, the Obama campaign is claiming that the New York Times is biased. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know how that's working, but uh, wow. that's we're, a good we're all shocked. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's like saying Fox News is unbiased. <laughs> well, I mean, for Obama to claim that, I know, that's, I that's, know. Just, that's funny. Yeah. Um, as far as the, J- this kind of stuff. the J.P. Morgan situation, I mean, look, I thought that the government was supposed to put in place certain uh, standards after the debacle of 2008 that, um, that would have um, not prevented this sort of um, very wild cat sort of investing but at least reformed it, and uh, it just doesn't look like it's happened. Uh, you know, it's it's just uh, it's business as usual. I mean, there's nothing nothing that nothing really seems to have changed. And of course, the question that that people need to ask now is whether or not this company is going to ask for a bailout. Well, I, I don't think they will. And, and what's gone on here is that um, the Dodd Frank bill, when it was originally uh, introduced, would have uh, have prevented. Uh, this kind of hedging, they had limits on the on the amount of risk a bank could take with its depositors' money, and we have to remember that the money that was lost belonged to the depositors here. Right. Um, that, 
that was uh, stripped out um, in an amendment by your very own Scott Brown and uh, when it went to the Senate, and the uh, conference committee agreed to that. As soon as the bill was passed, uh, the American Banking Association litigated it. They filed 14 lawsuits against it in order to stop implementation. At the same time, their lobbyists descended upon uh, the House, and of course they had a friendly House at, at this point because it was a Tea Party House, uh, trying to remove as much money as they could from the, um, the, the Department of Justice unit that would actually enforce the bill. Well, the, the, what happened in all of that is that uh, uh, a loophole opened up, a loophole that Scott Brown wrote and then was uh, aided and abetted by the fact that there weren't enough people in the uh, Justice Department to actually enforce the regulations against the banks, that Jamie Dimon uh, drove a truck through. Unfortunately, he drove it in the wrong direction, and what this brings up is that not only since the, um, the, the financial catastrophe of uh, the last administration, uh, when the banks claimed they were too big to fail, now they have become too big to manage. And I think we have reached a point where we absolutely positively need to break up these banks. There are now five banks that control two-thirds of the assets of the nation, of the nation. And that is just far too much. They need to be broken up. They can't even manage themselves, and this is one example of that. Now, well, the taxpayers are eventually going to pay for this because many of those deposits were FDIC insured, and the FDIC is going to have to, to cover that. So eventually, taxpayers are going to be putting part of this bill. But it doesn't look like Diamond is going to ask for a, um, a bailout. What he's going to do is ask uh, is just let it happen kind of um, quietly through the FDIC. We have to take a quick break and uh, welcome in our affiliates and then continue this conversation. So don't go away. Richard Nixon went to China. 
because he you know because he would was assumed that he would be anti-communist and yet he was able to open up relations and make a deal. So, you know, it just shows a weakness on the part of this administration that three and a half years in and there's been no real regulate, regulatory reform or oversight and uh, you know it's it's entirely on his watch and it's a disgrace well actually i have to i have to correct you on that first of all uh this was a colossal failure on the part of the congress the republican congress which which uh, restrict money from the Justice Department to do anything about this. And secondly, it was Scott Brown, and you can look this up. He wrote the actual language, or his staff wrote the actual language that allowed banks to take an unlimited risk if they could define it as hedging. And that's exactly what what J.P. Morgan Chase did here. That was passed by Republicans in the Senate. They threatened to filibuster the entire Rod Frank bill if they didn't well, get it, and and Henry and Harry Reid let them go ahead and do it. That yeah, first of all, Patrick, the Republicans minute, don't have. Wait a minute. No, no, no. You had a lot of time. The Republicans don't have a majority in the Scott Senate. Scott Brown is responsible. Fine, for this. we'll have to. Then, then that should stop it. And Romney has said he would get rid of the entire Dodd Frank bill. He had said that. Well, on the that probably. Right yeah, he put in something I think that's much tougher. And I, I don't know about what Scott Brown has done or not done. He'll have to take that up in his campaign. But the fact is that the Senate is controlled by the Democrats, and the president doesn't seem to have said much about anything. Now, are you saying that the Justice Department was actually defunded, and, and as such, were there, was their regulatory arm defunded? It was defunded partially, and also the SEC also had its, its budget whacked by the, uh, the Republican Congress. By the Republican and what House. part of the Attorney General's budget was was uh, reduced. I mean, if in fact this happened, the the, uh, the the units that deal with financial regulation. And you know that that already happened. That they were defunded. Yeah, there was a a, a, a big piece on this in the New York Times this Sunday. But it said that they had already been defunded, or this was a proposal. No, no it's uh, it's it, well. That's more complicated than that. What happened is that the American Banking Association sued the SEC to prevent them from implementing it, and they won at the lower in, in the lower courts. Uh, and the SEC said, you know, we're not going to go ahead with this. We're going to have to turn it over to the Justice Department because we can't. We have lost so much of our funding, we can't afford any more lawsuits. The Justice Department had its funding cut in the last budget. And it said that we don't have the staff to manage all of these banks to do to do this kind of regulation because our funds have been reduced too. So well, what result, specific but it, what just, specific really regulation are we talking about? Scott Brown wrote. Well, the, which specific the, regulation was was litigated, Patrick? The the, the regulation defining um, uh, limiting the amount of risk a bank can. Well, first of all, there are 14 of them that were litigated, and some of those court, those uh, court cases are still ongoing. Right. The, uh, but this particular one was a regulation that limited the amount of risk a bank can, can take overall. The loophole that Scott Brown wrote said they can take as much risk as they want if they define it as hedging. In this particular right. case, this was a hedge. This was hedging, but it, was, mm -hmm. it, it gets very complicated here. It was double hedging. They bought they bought bonds which they wanted to hedge. They bought stock to hedge the bonds, and then they bought more bonds to hedge the stock. And it's that third buy. Where they lost the two billion dollars, Jamie Dimon is claiming that 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 is completely legal under the the loophole that Scott Brown wrote, and he right. probably is right. It is. Yeah, but the point is that first of all, the does the Dodd Frank bill allow therefore that uh, the bank be bailed out if they were 
placing a bad uh, and risky investment. I and I think the answer is it does. And yes, that, that, does. That, was a, that was a complaint made by Republicans from day one, that what that bill did was it codified the too big to fail aspect. It, it, it legally made it possible, made the government obligated to bail out companies at a certain size. And that's something that's, uh, uh, you know, yet this bill is touted as a great reform. I, I don't think that there was any, you know, anything about that, that that was a great reform. Now, as far as the actual aspects of the bill that are being litigated, I'd have to look at each one of those, Patrick. I can't really comment on that. Okay. Some of them may have some constitutional problems. Obviously, a, a court felt that they did. Some of them may not. I don't know. A Reagan appointee lower court judge did, and the SEC right. decided not to appeal it. But uh, no, we, we should have some people on to talk about this because. Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, now, like I said, the taxpayers will pick up some of this, but they'll do it quietly. It won't be a bailout. And Jamie Dimon is well aware of the fact that uh, this could give ammunition to people who want tougher regulation. So he's not asking for a bailout. Yeah, I'd also, like to see uh, you know how, what this administration's involvement in it, it has been, and how many of their their people supported that. And we no, just don't, don't have right. enough information about it at this yeah. point. But what I could, I would say is that there's been no leadership. Yeah, well, <clears throat> there, there's been plenty of leadership. But I think some of it's been in the wrong wrong direction because of the Wall Street takeover of the uh, Treasury Department with Obama's blessing. I, I, you and I agree. Well, Obama's on that always one. been a Wall Street creature. Yeah, I mean, and I, and I think that, that you need somebody who can stand up to Wall Street. Obama obviously ha hasn't done it. You, you and I agree on that one, uh, very much so. Although I noticed that Scott Brown is now the number one recipient in the country of Wall Street funds, and we have to take a break right now Good because we have a guest waiting. But we can probably continue this conversation during that. So we'll be right back. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. We have waiting for us uh, Sean Bilat, who's a conservative. Uh, Candidate for Congress in Massachusetts, don't go away. Diabetes, the common cold, arthritis, you name it, it's there. 
And if you click on one of those, you'll see that Joe Barton, the, the president of BartonPublishing.com, uh, has commissioned the best doctors and the best experts in the field on that particular disease, that particular problem, and they have written books, diets, health plans, which are all yours. You can buy them right there online. They're very inexpensive, $20. Will, will bring you the information you need to manage something like acid reflux. Now they don't they don't they don't sell cures. They don't sell pills. What they sell is information that you can use to manage your body. And there's a coupon code. And if you put in the coupon code fairness, you get an immediate right there in front of you on the computer screen 50% reduction, ten dollars for the information you need to manage your body. Now I know of prescription pills that cost more than ten dollars a piece. And what's more. As soon as you hit, hit the buy button, it appears right there on your screen. You don't have to wait for the mailman. You don't have to wait for Federal Express. And you can get hard copies if you want, but but usually most people just like to have that PDF appear on their screen. They can open it up. They can print it out. They can read it there. So that's Barton Publishing, bartonpublishing.com, your source of information to manage your health and your body your way naturally without expensive or toxic drugs. Chuck, we have a guest on the uh, on the board, and I'd like to have you introduce him. Thank you, Patrick. Our guest this segment is U.S. Marine Corps Reserve Major Sean Bielot, running for Congress in the 4th Congressional District. Sean, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thanks, Chuck. Good to be, good to be back. Sean, I want to start by talking about some um, horse race issues. Firstly, um, the 4th District has changed since redistricting, and now the infant Joe Kennedy has jumped into the race, um, that being the son of former uh, Rep. Joe Kennedy. I think that what this comes down to is whether or not uh, Joe Kennedy is as dumb as we all think he is. Have well, you had the, any uh, uh, I'm sorry? Uh, okay, going back any, to your... Go ahead. Have I had any what? I mean, have you uh, has he engaged you at all? I mean, has, has there been any oh, uh, debate? Or... No, right, okay. Not at all. Um, I anticipate, you know, as we get closer to the general, there will be more of that. Right now, uh, his campaign is very, running very much a raise money, keep your head down type of type of approach. He isn't coming out for interviews. He isn't talking about issues. For the first three months, he didn't have any issues page on his website. Um, the new district, though, to go back to your initial question, is much more balanced than the previous district. Right. Um, it includes a number of the uh, 495 Beltway towns, so more sort of the suburban uh, areas outside of Boston. Um, it does not include the South Coast, which was previously there, which is a strongly Democratic area. So it's a much more balanced district. And I think what we're what what I'm encountering a lot of is um, is people are saying just because he's a Kennedy, that's not enough. This is somebody who is. 30 years old, has two years of experience, work experience outside of uh, school and, and the Peace Corps, um, and he's never lived in the district before. So the idea that you can parachute in and just run on your name, I think people aren't going to be fooled, fooled by that this year. Well, so far, a lot of the people of, of this generation of candidates mm-hmm. have lost. Um, you know, I could think of Caroline Kennedy running for Senate in New York, and uh, the only public event that I think he actually – where he actually spoke that was covered was his announcement. And in that announcement, in a sense, in a de facto sense, he endorsed you by saying, I am running to, uh, because I, am, um, I want to change what's going on in Washington, which, of course, is what you're running for. 
Right. Um, and I hadn't thought of it that way, but I like what, I like that approach. Sean, he has not taken any public positions. Mm-hmm. I think he did briefly, and then he pulled it off his website. We don't know anything about him. But you are a known entity in the district. You ran a fantastic campaign in 2010 against Barney Frank, who is now retiring, probably because he's seen the polls in the district. And uh, and you've got a lot of experience as a candidate at this point. You've got an organization that's on the ground, and I think that um, are you as well set up this time around as you were last time in terms of um, infrastructure and being are you having your people out there? Oh, we we are worlds ahead of where we were at this point in 2010, um, and even where we were near the uh, end of the election cycle uh, last time around in 2010. We just have a, a very strong staff. Um, we have the ability, the infrastructure to take on a number of things we couldn't before. We have a much more um, analytical and disciplined approach to, to what we're trying to accomplish. And I feel great about where we are. Even more importantly, though, we have, last time around, we had about 1,700 active volunteers, and we've begun mobilizing those, and we've had a couple more, a couple hundred more people sign on. So that's really what it's going to be about. He's going to outspend us. We're not going to match sure. dollar for dollar. Um, but we are going to do a better job organizing, getting our people out and knocking on doors and putting out yard signs and making phone calls. We've already started making the phone calls. So I think we're way ahead of where we were in 2010, and frankly, I think we're way ahead of where he is because it just takes a while to build that infrastructure. No matter who you are, no matter how much money you have, it takes a while to get volunteers to come in and do the work uh, that makes it, makes it possible to win an election. Well, Sean, I'm glad to know that because I think that the, the greatest thing that could happen on Election Day is for you and Scott and Mitt to all sweep to victory. Um, what are some, Every campaign and every election cycle has certain issues that come to the fore, um, sort of organically, what people are concerned about. What are the, maybe the, the top two, maybe three issues that you're encountering as you crisscross the district and talk to people? Well, unfortunately, they're pretty much the same issues as last time. It's jobs in the economy and it's fiscal responsibility. I mean, people are hurting right now in, in Fall River, which is one of our more southern, uh, southernmost towns. Uh, they have about a 15% unemployment rate. That's not underemployment. That's not people have stopped looking for work. That's the classical definition of unemployment. Jobs in the economy are all they care about right now. Um, it's the most critical issue. It's, it's affecting them. It's affecting their neighbors. It's affecting their families. So that's by far and away the predominant uh, issue. Even in the wealthier northern suburbs, people are concerned about slow growth and about their businesses and, and that sort of thing. So that's definitely the number one issue. Number two, though, is, is longer-term fiscal discipline. Uh, what sort of – how are we going to work our way to, out of this debt? What, what legacy are we leaving to our children and our grandchildren? How do we get the country back on track uh, fiscally? Those are, those are definitely the two biggest issues. Now, Sean, do you present any particular program in terms of how to address those issues? Well, starting with jobs and the, and the economy, I think there's two uh, two primary levers we can pull. The first is uh, stimulus, not through government spending directed at specific programs or type of infrastructure projects, but uh, stimulus through giving people and businesses back their own money. So. Um, a family is always going to know better what to do with their money than than the government can. Um, you know, is it pay down a credit card? Is it buy a new car? Is it pay for a student loan? You know, or, or to send a child to college? Um, these are the kinds of decisions that are made at the micro level, and these are the kinds of decisions that ultimately will get the economy going again. But the second part is it's around regulation. So setting aside the question of too much or too little regulation or good regulation or bad regulation, there's just this question of certainty. 
And so I talked to um, I've talked to many small business owners who who say something very similar, which is I could hire right now, but I'm not because I don't know what's coming. I don't know what my taxes are going to be. I don't know what health care is going to cost me. I don't know what employment insurance is going to cost me. And so they're holding off, and it's tragic because each time that happens, that's one more job that isn't being created. That's one more family that isn't isn't being taken care of by virtue of somebody having full employment. So I think those are the two big things we could do. Give people and businesses back their money and uh, set the regulatory environment still. Let people know what's coming. Okay, let me introduce my co-host at this point to Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick? Uh, thank you, Chuck. And, and uh, uh, Sean, welcome back to Fairness Radio. I know this is the second time we've had you on, and you're always uh, fun to talk with. Uh, I also Good, thank wanna, you. Well, you're quite welcome. I also want to point out to our listeners that we are reaching out to the Kennedy campaign, and uh, with uh, good luck, we'll have uh, uh, your we'll have Joe Kennedy on on the air with us too. Um, we've already got a couple emails in, but I, I have a few questions of my own. Um, well, first of all, the oil companies, um, the five major oil companies based in the United States, have uh, have had record profits this this year. Exxon Mobil has has in its uh, annual report. Its quarterly report has uh, produced said it's produced more profits than at any time in its history. But at the same time, it got about a billion and a half dollars in uh, subsidies from the U.S. taxpayer. Would you cut those subsidies if you were in Congress? Well, I think the larger question isn't which industries you subsidize and which industries you don't. The question is, do we have the type of tax code that is um, getting rid of loopholes, that's creating a flatter structure, that's simpler, that's in, in addition to the money that corporations spend on taxes, they spend even more on tax accounting and tax attorneys and ways to um, sidestep some of some of what's been imposed. So, I think the real question, the larger question, the more important question is. How do we reform the system fundamentally so that there is a... How would you reform the system fundamentally, Sean? Well, I'd I'd move to to a flatter system. So right now we have one of the highest corporate income taxes in in the world, um, which uh, discourages growth. Um, And like I said, by having uh, a several-thousand-page code, there's all sorts of distortions in in what people pay and how they pay at corporations, what they pay and how they pay it. at the personal level, I think uh, I think you can flatten it to uh, essentially three brackets. You can limit deductions. Um, you know, people I hear way too much talk about whether the um, whether the top taxpayers are paying enough, and not nearly enough talk about how do we bring people up from at the bottom. Why are we focused on bringing people down at the top and not bringing people up at the bottom? And so I think when you when you think about a um, flatter, fair code. You would also think about the impact on the working poor. You would think about yeah, um, what payroll taxes look like to the working poor. You would uh, think about whether um, a system of credits which gives people back money at the end of the year versus in their in their uh, month-to-month paychecks is the right approach. Don't we have um, that with unearned tax credits now? Are you Is that what you're well, talking about? Well, that's exactly it. So that's right. So um, two-thirds of people who would qualify for earned income tax credits don't actually receive them. Because they either don't file, they're unaware. They so a, a better approach would be just be to um, eliminate or limit withholding in the first place. Okay, so so you you are actually in favor of of getting rid of uh, the, the loopholes that uh, corporations like like GE use to pay no taxes at all. Yeah, absolutely. As long as we can impose a saner code, 
Um, well, you and I agree on are... that one. Uh, apparently, you disagree with Grover Norquist, who says we shouldn't close those those loopholes because they uh, that that would really be a tax increase. Yeah, you know, I think on almost all issues, it's it's helpful to have some people who are very sort of extreme in their rhetoric, as long as they can be uh, polite about it, but, you know, sort of dogmatic on things. I don't consider um, I don't consider uh, closing a loophole a tax increase, um, as long as it's done in conjunction with overall reform. Okay, you and I agree on that one. Now, I noticed that uh, corporate, the corporate share of taxes paid has fallen from about 35 to 40 percent in, uh, in in the 1950s to about six percent of total government revenue uh, last year. Would you uh, want to see that the, the corporate share of taxes paid uh, go up, or would you want to uh, close loopholes but lower taxes so that corporations still pay such a small part of uh, our uh, our total overall revenue? Well, you know, um, Mitt Romney, when he said corporations are people too, was widely derided for it. And I think what he was getting at is this. Corporations are a group of people. And so when you, whether it's a corporate entity, whether it's a nonprofit entity, whether it's a, a church group or a Boy Scout troop or whatever, it's a group of people. And so when you say corporations aren't paying enough, maybe that's true in some sense, but anything they're paying or not pay, paying is uh, profit that's not being distributed or profit that's not being re, uh, reinvested or it, it, the money isn't sort of um, isn't sort of evaporating, right? So you can say corporations should pay more, corporations should pay less. Ultimately, though, the real question to ask is what do we need to do to encourage economic growth and allow the most people to uh, benefit from, from their hard work and investment? Well, we, we we both agree with that. Although uh, technically corporations are not groups of people, they are fictitious uh, legal entities created by the states in, in exchange for uh, protection against liability. And that and nonprofits don't pay taxes anyway, so that's uh, that's not really. Yeah, relevant. I, I think you understand my broader point, though. It isn't uh, it isn't legal definition so much as this idea that you can't divorce um, activity of so, people from from an entity. Yeah, uh, no, actually that's not really true. Um and and I I just as an aside, we had a um a um a, a, an incident uh, recently in which a, a woman tried to marry a corporation, but unfortunately it didn't show up at the altar that was Bank of America and it turned her down. But because you know it's a it's a person too, but in any case, yes, uh, uh you could say that, but what, when you uh let corporations quote keep more of the money they earn, they don't actually the board and the officers of those corporations didn't actually earn that money. That money was earned by the workers. What happens is the, the board and the corporations then take that money and they invest it in old movie studios in China or factories in Taiwan. Uh, there's no guarantee that by lowering corporate taxes or keeping them as, as ridiculously low as they are, and you said they were the highest in the, in the world, yeah, that's true, but they don't pay them. The, uh, the, the, the average uh, corporate tax in this country is closer to 24 percent, not 35 percent because of tax avoidance. We have no way of seeing to it that the money they keep actually comes back to us. But when I pay well, taxes, when of pay Americans taxes, we do know that it comes back to us because it's our property taxes to go to our school and our police and, and, our, and our government and build our roads. But corporations, they can stick it in offshore bank accounts, which most of them do, including Mitt Romney, who has a Swiss bank account. So we have to come up with some way of seeing to it that those tax breaks actually lead to economic development here. And I haven't heard any Republicans come up with a way to do that. Have you come up with a way to do that? 
Well, let's back up for a second. 52% of Americans own stocks, either directly through 401K from defined benefit plans, pension plans, including union members and, and everyone else. So any any publicly traded corporation is essentially owned by much of the American public. So shifting uh, tax burden isn't as straightforward as saying, oh, corporations should pay more. That comes out of what shareholders own as uh, as as a um, you know the net present value of future cash cash flows of a of a given corporation. So to say uh, simply that if we charge corporations more, quote unquote, tax corporations more, there will be no uh, economic impact to people is just not true. Sure. Wait, 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 wait. You, you keep forgetting that this little this little part about profits and, and where they go. Yes, it's true uh, about the. Uh, 54 percent uh, of American people own stocks in their 401ks, etc. But you didn't mention that 78 percent of those stocks are actually owned by 10 percent, the top 10 percent of the population in the country. And of those, 72 percent are owned by the top 1 percent of the population. The rest of us have a little tiny bit. Most of that goes to the super wealthy who don't pay taxes or who only pay 15 percent because they're 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 like like Mitt Romney. They, they claim their income is, is based upon uh, acceleration of uh, earnings on stock and things like that. But to well, get the, back those, to your, those your statistics point, are, are based you, on how do we see to it that corporations invest in this country instead of letting the money go, instead of putting the money overseas? Those statistics are based on individuals as opposed to entities to which individuals belong. So, for instance, CalPERS owns a huge uh, percentage of stock. The California Pension Fund for Public Employees owns a huge percentage of, of stock relative to any given individual. So it isn't quite as straightforward as saying 78% of um, stocks are owned by uh, the top 5% or, or, or whatever the statistic may be. Um, I think it's a little bit more complex than that. But, uh, again, I think the approach – pardon me? It is. I, I agree, but that's not the topic here. Patrick, can I just intervene slightly here? I don't think anyone, including President Obama, maybe some people on the far left, but no one else is talking about raising corporate taxes. In fact, President yeah, Obama yeah. recently said that he's going to lower corporate taxes, as you might recall. So I don't know. You're, you're off on a tangent here. There's, there's no. Uh, this doesn't seem to be a part of the debate. I think it's generally agreed that corporate taxes should be kept lower. But the question I think that's more relevant here, Sean, and Patrick is bringing this up, is what sort of policies would you advocate that would encourage well, capital Chuck, to be I'm invested inside the United States? My own questions. Thank you. All right. Well, I'll ask the question I, uh, then. Okay, I'm Patrick. Then uh, very good. Uh, my question is, what sort of policies Sean would you advocate, no Sean, that would so, result so Sean, in capital invested in being States? invested inside the United States, which is what you're asking, Patrick? Right. Do you have any policies on that, Sean? Well, ultimately, make the envir investment environment more attractive. I mean, capital isn't restricted by borders. Um, right. And people, as much as most Americans don't want to see Chinese manufacturing increase at the expense of American manufacturing, they still shop at Walmart and they still consume uh, Chinese goods. And it's because of uh, international capital flows do not stop at borders. So what you do is you create an environment in which um, businesses are more likely to see, succeed here than elsewhere. Um, we used to have the predominance in the world in terms of the percentage of initial public offerings that took place in the United States. That's changed in the Sarbanes-Oxley, post-Sarbanes-Oxley world uh, because we've created additional regulatory uh, burden and cost for corporations. So 
the way you keep jobs here, the way you keep capital here, is by providing a better uh, investment environment. One component of that is a more reasonable corporate tax structure. Okay. Well, I want to shift the uh, the questions a little bit here to other issues. Uh, if you were in Congress, would you uh, vote to um, um, overturn DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act? You know, I, I think social issues are red herring right now. Um, I think people are really focused on jobs and the economy. Uh, I don't hear anybody asking about social issues this cycle. Last year there was some talk about it. This cycle I'm not hearing that at all. Okay. Would you would you vote for a constitutional personhood amendment that claims that uh, uh, fertilized eggs are people? Again, nobody nobody is Congress is considered there that. there is no serious legislation that I'm aware of uh that's going to push that it push that topic. This is like the the debate way back when when George Stephanopoulos was trying to bring into the, to the debate this idea of, you know, somehow restricting uh, uh contraception at the state level or something. I mean, it's a nonsensical hypothetical. It's, well, no, I mean a bill was introduced in Congress by by a Republican congressman a serious piece of legislation. I mean, there's there's a couple thousand bills uh, introduced each cycle. Obviously, some of them are more serious than others. So, so does that mean you wouldn't, or does that mean you don't want to answer the question? It means, at this point, it's a hypothetical. I I, I don't know the first thing about uh, said piece of legislation if it exists and who who submitted it. And again, we're focused on uh, on issues that are affecting families right now, and that's jobs in the economy. Okay, Sean, what so about I'll, the Dodd-Frank uh, bill? You uh, do you take a position so. on that? Do you think that that should be something that might be reformed or even thrown out? I'm sorry, what was the uh, Dodd-Frank, the, oh, uh, yeah, the so. financial regulatory bill? Right, right. Um, I, there, there are so many problems with that bill. I mean, even even now, Elizabeth Warren is talking about the unenforceability of of many aspects of it. I mean, it was a it was a bill that gave vast powers to um, unaccountable. Uh, and new executive branch agencies. So you had um, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is actually funded via the Fed, meaning that they right. don't have to go to the Hill annually for appropriations, so they don't have direct congressional oversight. Um, and they have a very broad mandate, and it's not at all clear how far that mandate is expected to spread, what sort of topics they're going to be addressing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, sometimes the cure is worse than the disease. And I'm not sure we struck the right balance with Dodd-Frank. I am sure that there's a lot of stuff in that bill that shouldn't be. And I am sure that uh, ultimately it is uh, it is legislation that we're going to have to, uh, if not repeal wholly, certainly uh, revisit significantly. And we're going to have okay. to take a break right now. We'll be right back to listen to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. And you're listening 
listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick <coughs> on the Block Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. And this uh, segment is brought to you by Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com, your source of information to manage your health and your body your way without using toxic drugs or expensive drugs but using only natural ingredients. We're talking with Sean Bilat. Sean is running for Congress in the 4th District in Massachusetts, and uh, we're taking your emails now. We have a, uh, Sean, we have some emails about foreign policy here. Um, one of them uh, is from uh, Larry Foreman. I don't think it's the same Larry Foreman because this one is in San Francisco. And he says, would you keep or reverse the president's policy of withdrawing from uh, Afghanistan over 10 years in order to leave a solid government behind? Well, I'm not aware that the uh, administration has a clear policy on Afghanistan. Our soldiers and Marines over there, airmen, sailors, are doing everything they've been asked. They're winning every battle that they've been uh, put in to fight, but their civilian leadership is failing them. Uh, I don't think most Americans could tell you what it is we're trying to accomplish in Afghanistan. And until that's defined, until there's an end goal in mind, uh, I, I, I don't know what the right answer is in, in terms of the policy. I believe that the best way to conduct it, uh, conduct operations would be uh, a lower level of, um, of U.S. involvement, something similar to what we saw in the, the mid to early years of the, of the conflict where we had primarily special operations forces operating largely near the border areas along with, uh, with, with technology such as UAVs and whatnot to monitor those areas. I think that that would be the best approach, but in terms of establishing some sort of uh, sustainable democracy long-term in Afghanistan, I think that's not going to happen. Well, I don't think the administration has said anything about uh, a, a sustainable democracy. What they're really trying to do there is beef up the police force. But let me ask you a question. Uh, uh, Chuck introduced you as a uh, reserve Marine officer. Have you actually seen combat? No. No. Have, have you been to Afghanistan? I reached my end of active service in 2002. So it was prior to Iraq uh, kicking off Afghanistan. We were supposed to deploy um, in January of 2002, and it was canceled at the last minute, so no. Okay, well, we thank you for your service in, in any case. Um, Sinclair Medallia in, in St. Louis wants to know, the president has dramatically increased uh, drone attacks both in Afghanistan and Yemen, and it seems to be clearing out the Taliban quite effectively. Would you, if, if you were in Congress, would you vote to continue or increase the drone strikes? Uh, yeah, I, I, I have some reservations. Um, for instance, attacks on U.S. citizens without some sort of judicial uh, proceeding, I think, is wrong and unconstitutional. Uh, that judicial proceeding could take many forms. It doesn't. It, I am in, I'm not envisioning some sort of trial by jury or anything like that. But there should be some level of oversight before we start uh, attacking uh, U.S. citizens either to revoke their citizenship or whatever. Um, on top of that, I think that there's always the danger of the tool being overused uh, because it's, quote, unquote, easy. Um, there's limited risk of U.S. casualties. Uh, there's limited risk of, of embarrassment or, or blowback from, from strikes. And so there's at least the potential uh, for the tool to be overused, but right now I think it's been a, a pretty effective policy. Okay. Uh, and I, I do, too. I agree with you on that. Uh, it has changed the nature of warfare, and it has uh, protected, I think, American lives quite effectively. Um, Absolutely. Shelley Legender Wright in New York says the president – has beefed up the CIA, given it more money and more training and more freedom. I'm not sure this is good for our freedom. What do you think? 
Well, the CIA's role is um, I have um, in the reserve, I'm an intelligence officer, so I'm fairly familiar with the um, intelligence community and, and a lot of the, its focuses and how it operates. And CIA is almost wholly um, focused on uh, overseas. There is some domestic activity, but it's focused on, over, uh, on foreign actors within the U.S. There are very strong strictures against um, against any sort of uh, involvement of U.S. persons. Um, so I, I'm, I'm actually a lot more comfortable with, uh, say, the CIA or the NSA's use of American information than I am, for example, with uh, Google or some of the other um, you know, commercial companies out there who, which use all sorts of personal information for all sorts of things. You and I agree on that one, and uh, I had a relative who worked at Facebook, so I have a very good idea of, of, of <laughs> how effective they are using that information. Well, that, that brings up um, uh, an, another uh, interesting question for me, since you are an intelligence officer. Uh, we, um, uh, Rich, we've seen last week the, uh, uh, the delivery of a new kind of underwear bomb to British intelligence and eventually to American intelligence uh, through a, a spy who was planted by British intelligence in um, in Al Qaeda in Yemen. Um, in the past, there has been criticism of intelligence agencies, U.S. intelligence agencies, cooperating too much with um, intelligence agencies from other countries. But in this case, it seems like it's a pretty good idea. What, what do you think of this kind of cooperation? Would you recommend it, or do you think it uh, puts us at any kind of risk? Right. There's cooperation um, among uh, intelligence organizations at various levels and with various degrees of trust and um, different different uh, types of motivations. That that occurs. It should occur. It's it's a healthy thing. What isn't a healthy thing is that you were able to, or I was able to, or any of us were able to, so uh, succinctly and clearly um, discuss the details of that operation. It makes it that much more difficult in the future for British intelligence to recruit assets uh, in target countries to support those assets to um, get the information that they need and then for us to have actionable intelligence on which to make a strike or do a raid or or do something else preventative in nature. I think that there's been far too much, um, and it has been in this administration, there's been far too much, um, if not leaking, publicizing of what would ordinarily be um, classified or very tightly held detail. Well, actually, I brought that up uh, at a uh, meeting I was recently at of um, foreign policy uh, experts. I'm a retired professor of international relations. And uh, one of them there, uh, who happened to be a Brit, uh, pointed out to me that the reason that this particular person I was talking to felt that the reason that the, the British made it clear that they had inserted dozens of um, Human intelligence agents into Al Qaeda in, um, in in Yemen and in uh, Somalia was, even though one would think immediately that that would uh, lead to um, a, a hunt inside of Al Qaeda for those agents, is that exactly what they wanted to do? That if, that uh, by doing this, they sowed uh, fear and distrust and uh, deflected the energies of um, Al Qaeda in Yemen into. Um, into searching out who the traders were and in the process probably eliminating a few non-traders in the process so that it was a way to actually disrupt them uh, rather than uh, a dangerous to us. And I don't know, what do you think of that theory? Well, again, you know, at the risk of uh, syllogism, um, if we can have that discussion of that theory, then it's not going to be an effective theory. Intelligence works best. Um, human intelligence works best, especially 
when sources and methods remain uh, confidential or classified. Um, anytime you start disclosing them, you veer out of the realm of intelligence correct, uh, collection and more into the realm of uh, psyops, psychological operations. That's a whole different ball of wax. Um, that can be effective for psyops. I would say it's very ineffective for uh, intelligence and traditional gathering. Okay. Uh, uh, well, let me introduce you to uh, our uh, our resident theologian uh, and also Boston <coughs> resident, uh, Deacon Michael Wanowitz. Mike, do you have any questions? Well, Sean, <clears throat> excuse me. Good to hear you again. I know we were in the studio back in Quincy a while back, and I'm thinking too in terms of the election coming up, running in a very tight race, if you might call it that, with um, one of the Kennedy family people. Um, do you think there will be anything coming up in the election process, debate-wise, that would center upon social issues? You mentioned that the economy and jobs, but will it at all be a maybe even a distraction? Yes, absolutely. I, I think there will be a strong effort to distract from the core issues. Um, and, you know, we've seen that over the past several months um, as the uh, Congressional Democratic Party in, in particular has gone to absurd lengths to create this notion of, quote, unquote, war on women. So anytime there's any effect, any change to any sort of funding, it's, it's this, quote, unquote, war on women. And the reason for that is that they don't have, they haven't been able to demonstrate leadership on the economic issues that people care about right now. So, for them, strategically, it is much more effective and attractive to talk about social issues. And that certainly is not true of all Democrats by any stretch of the imagination. But there is definitely a um, prominent portion of the party that's using that tactic, that technique. And I think you're going to see that uh, play out here in Massachusetts as well. Um, I'm going to continue to focus on, on what people care about right now, jobs and the economy. Um, but I think there will be a strong temptation for some to try to shift the focus. Uh, Sean, uh, on, on that, I have to contradict you a little bit. Um, the, 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 the bill I, I mentioned, which is the Sanctity of Human Life bill, was actually introduced by 63 House Republicans. That's fairly serious. And I'd also like to point out that the economy has seen 24 months of steady private sector job growth and 24 months of actual economic growth under President Obama. So that, that their management of the economy has been pretty darn good, and this is a serious issue in the minds of at least 63 Republican House members who will be your compatriots if you go into Congress. Well, I, I guess I'd, I'd ask you to tell those same statistics to the people of Fall River who have 15% unemployment. Um, statistics are statistics. What matters is people's sense of whether they have um, access to the employment that they want to have. Let's not forget that uh, unemployment statistics are distorted by people who are, are either underemployed or have stopped seeking um, further employment. Um, I would argue strongly that that remains the number one issue for, for Americans. It's true of people coming straight out of college. The unemployment rate among people who have graduated in, in the past three years is just slightly above 50%, which is kind of a stunning figure, all things considered, because these are the people who should be getting into the workforce, gaining experience, and then driving the economy in, in the years to come. And, and when we have a stagnation in their mid to, to late 20s, you take away from that ability to add later on. So I think that's that's an example. I'm, I'm going a little on a tangent there. But um, I think it's very important to continue to focus on, on what people are, are, are talking about because any town meeting on that, any meet and greet on that, any time I'm doing, you know, out shaking hands, people are talking about jobs in the economy. Okay, I agree with you. Go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. 
You know, I think that we'll have to let the voters decide whether or not they think the economy is wonderful, and we'll find that out, of course, in November. Sean Bilad is our guest. Sean, uh, what committees would you probably want to be on as a congressman from Massachusetts in the U.S. House? Well, that'll be a, a, a conversation I'm looking forward to having. Um, I think uh, most likely I'm, I'm interested in foreign policy, international security, so I'd be um, probably drawn to armed services, uh, foreign relations. Um, and then also I have a strong interest in, in tax policy, uh, so ways and means would also be of, of interest. Also, what is your position, and this is one that affects a lot of uh, the opinion of people in our district, with regard to the nuclear developments in Iran via the Israel? Oh, absolutely. You're right. It's, that's a hugely important issue. Um, I think that our policy for too long, and I'm not going to blame this solely on the Obama administration, goes well back into the Bush administration as well. I think we haven't seen the level of engagement um, on Iran in, in pushing back their development. I think we haven't supported, uh, in the last few years in particular, Israel sufficiently um, it, as the only regional credible deterrent to um, Iranian uh, progress in, in, in creating nuclear weapons. Um, I think that we need to be very clear uh, in our support for Israel. I think we need to be very clear to the Iranians that um, that force is not only an option but a viable one that uh, is is likely to be implemented if they don't, uh, you know, sort of step into line, start uh, moving with um, with the international program. We have seen progress um, over the past several months via the sanctions. Um, they're having trouble shipping oil and, and getting revenues from that. Um, so that's good. Uh, the question is, do we? how well will we continue to continue on this course? How long will we remain um, focused on the issue? The Israelis aren't going to take their eyes off of it because it's so um, existential for them. Right. Uh, right. In Iran that says that Israel shouldn't exist and has um, weapons capable of delivering nuclear devices in a, in, in regionally um, is a very dangerous thing. So the Israelis are not going to take their eye off of this, and I think we should, we should support them in every way we can. We have an emailer who wants to know exactly what I think Chuck was asking is, would you bomb Iran? It, it, that's a very black or white question. Um, obviously, if, if circumstances uh, required it, absolutely. It, I think it would be silly for us to say no. That's something we're, we're not going to do. On the other hand, we there's no if there if there are peaceful, non-kinetic ways of achieving the end, then we should pursue those. Um, but I, I w in no way would hesitate if it became necessary. Chuck, we have about three more minutes. Well, Sean, listen, I just uh, I'm, I'm going to be watching your progress with great anticipation, and um, I admire what you're doing. Uh, let people know how they can reach you. SeanForCongress.com. That's S-E-A-N-F-O-R, Congress.com. Sean Bielad, I want to thank you for joining us this afternoon. Well, thank oh, you very much. Hope to be, we have, we have uh, a little time on. left, and I, I wonder if okay. we have another we we have have two time. minutes. I wonder if Mike has any more questions. No, I, I, when I say no, I mean, I did ask that one question, and I think it's an interesting uh, response that Sean had vis-a-vis -vis trying to keep the focus during the campaign and be, uh, you know, ready for any kind of distraction that may come up. Sean, it might yeah, be your military I, I background, but you're doing a very people. good job of focusing properly on the issues you want to focus on, especially here in Massachusetts. I think you're absolutely on the right path. 
Well, thank you. Um, hopefully, hopefully the voters of the fourth agree. Uh, and, I, you know, I think they will. I, I feel very good about this year, and, and the yeah. conversations we've been having with voters so far have just been great. So, again, SeanForCongress.com. I'd encourage anybody to come, um, sign up to, to get involved, um, read about There's some more in-depth in policy positions on there. So uh, please come to SeanForCongress.com. And I'm looking forward to the debate, too. That would be that's – that's the side I want to see. Oh, there is a debate. I. Yeah. When's, when's the debate, Sean? Well, we'll see. Uh, but, uh, there, there's nothing set. I, oh, okay. I I can't see though how we could uh, not have one. I think it'd be very difficult for um, him to avoid that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, assuming he wants to avoid it. I mean, we're even, we're even having political debates now in in Egypt between the uh, the presidential candidates. So I don't think you can have a a good contest without a debate. I had a, a couple of quick questions for you since we do have a, a minute uh, left here. Um, how many people are are in the are in the district you're running in? Uh, there's about seven hundred thousand. Uh, when I first started running campaigns back in the uh, the sixties, a uh, congressional district was two hundred and fifty thousand, and now you're you're running in one that's seven hundred thousand. Do you think that's too many people for a congressional district? I'm not sure. Uh, too many, obviously, is a relative term. Um, I think that technology that's available um, allows uh, people to interact, obviously, over a broader area and a broader range of issues. So I think as long as technology is employed smartly, um, it may not be. On the other hand, um, if it is, what's the alternative? Do we want a, a House of Representatives with four, more than 435 members? I'd argue that uh, <laughs> we already have a sufficient number without adding on to that. Um, given given the lack of productivity. So. Okay. Well, th th that's it. We are out of time now. And, Sean Bilat, I, um, I, I thank you very much for being on with us. And uh, we will um, have uh, Joe Kennedy on mm -hmm. at, at some point. And that's it, for, that's it for today. You've been listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick from Blog Talk Radio, Cyber Station USA, and our affiliates. Uh, you can visit our website, www.fairnessradio.com, for blogs, photos, petitions, causes you believe in, like us on Facebook, sign up for our Twitter feed, and if you're listening to us on CyberStation USA, don't forget to stay tuned for Mike Siegel. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Thanks for joining right, us. Thanks. Thank you, Mike. Good night. Thank you. Yeah.